Well, today, we want to continue in our study of Matthew chapter 26. And this is where Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He has uh, just had the Last Supper with the disciples. They've left the upper room. They're uh, headed out uh, across to the Mount of Olives. And he predicts that one of them will betray Uh, One will betray and one will deny him three times. That's what we looked at last week. Now, he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, you know that um, our family went to Israel with all the kids, all three kids, and uh, 30 of our closest friends from Moody, little uh, (laughs) Moody Bible students, and we did a tour of Israel. And here, as you're walking down a hill... You can see the Temple Mount, clear as day, but on the other side of the Kidron Valley, you come to, actually you come to this gate, and there's a monk standing outside, and he's got a donation bucket, and you walk through the gate, and there are olive trees in a garden. This is the Garden of Gethsemane. MacArthur says that there are some trees there that are 2,000 years old. Maybe Jesus actually leaned against one of these trees. On the tour, uh, it's a great time, it's a fun time, lots of laughter. But when we went into the Garden of Gethsemane, no laughter. Very intense. In fact, uh, one of the guides said, why don't you just grab your Bibles and read about Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. So here the students are. They all found places where they're isolated. And the gravity of it all hits that this is where Jesus made that final decision to give his life. Kind of a life-changing experience. So let's read about it. Matthew 26, 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter... And the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And by the way, that word watch, it's translated most times as just stay awake. Remain here and stay awake with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
again for the second time he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass until I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Lots going on in this passage. We get a deep insight into who Jesus is and his relationship with the Father. And we see a prayer where he says, not my will, but thy will. And that raises all kinds of questions about the will of God and the relationship between the Father and the Son. And uh, we, we plumb the depths of the Trinity here and the union of Christ's humanity and his deity into one person. So we're going to look at all that. And I'm going to give you a real simple outline. We're going to first of all look at the pain of Jesus that he's already experiencing. Secondly, the person of Jesus. Who, who is he? And then thirdly, the prayer of Jesus, the prayer of submission. So let's take a look at the, the pain of Jesus he says to his three closest disciples, he tells, he tells the rest of them, you stay here, I need my closest friends with me. I need James and John and Peter. And he, they're there for support. They're there because he needs his friends, but he also needs his father. So the apostles are over there by the door, the three are here, and he goes further. And he says... My soul is very sorrowful, sorrowful, even to death. Now, I don't think he's speaking hyperbole here. I think as he is looking what is about to come upon him, he is so filled with grief and anguish and fear and anxiety that he was on the verge of dying as he looked at the cross. And going a little further, he fell on his face. Face down in the dirt. Here's his prayer. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. For all eternity I've been anticipating this moment. Now take it away. He's filled with utter terror. And then he goes back to his friends, and they're asleep. Could you not watch with me one hour? I don't know that we're to read a whole lot into that, other than that just adds to his pain. He needs his friends, and even they have turned his back on him. Now, Luke's gospel adds some more information. And being in agony... He prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. There's a, uh, a malady called hematidrosis. This is right off of Wikipedia. It's a very rare condition in which a human sweats blood. It may occur when a person is suffering extreme levels of stress, for example, facing his or her own death, 
Several historical references have been described, notably by Leonardo da Vinci, describing a soldier who sweated blood before battle, men unexpectedly given a death sentence, and then, of course, it goes on to talk about Jesus sweating blood. Paul Washer, a preacher, becomes indignant when he says, and don't think that Jesus is fearful of the physical pain. Others have endured crucifixion. In fact, Peter, before he was crucified, said, I'm unworthy to be crucified like Jesus. Crucify me upside down. So is Jesus sweating blood because he fears the nails? I I would. But Washer goes on to say, that's not why he was sweating blood. He is anticipating the wrath of God. He is looking into the depths of hell itself and is utterly terrified of the wrath of God. You know, if you want to know what hell is like, you can look to a number of different places. You can look at the metaphors in the Bible. Jesus talks about hell being a place where the fire is eternal, where the worm does not die. That's the larva eating the body for eternity. A place of utter darkness. So you can look to the metaphors. And by the way, don't let the word metaphor lull you into thinking that, well, hell's no big deal. That's just metaphor. R.C. Sproul says this, he says, when metaphors are used in the Bible, they usually point to a greater reality, or in this case, a worse reality. Okay? So you can look to the metaphors, or if you want to know what hell is like, you can look at Jesus' face as he is looking at hell. As he simply thinks about the wrath of God coming upon him, he is filled with terror, horror, fear, sorrow, to the point of death. You know, it's interesting, as you read the Gospels, Jesus fears nothing. Not afraid of anything. In fact, he's telling other people, fear not. Why are you so afraid? Where's your faith? Fear not. He weeps, but never for himself. It's always for others tomb of Lazarus over the city of Jerusalem. But here he is weeping and pleading and sweating blood to the point of death. For those of you in the room who have not come to Christ and you joke about hell, look at his face as he just thinks about it, as he peers into hell. For those of you who are like, ah, I don't know if I'm saved or not. I'll get around to it someday. Look at the face of Jesus as he glimpses into hell. What could be more important than making sure that hell is extinguished from your eternity? Like I say all the time, your biggest problem is not a marriage problem. It's not a financial problem. It's not your boss. It's not your kids. Your biggest problem, if you are not in Christ, is a wrath problem, where the wrath of God 
will be experienced for all eternity. And look at Jesus as he looks at the wrath of God filled with horror. Bad news is, if you are outside of Christ, you will experience the wrath of God. The good news is, as he looks at hell, he walks into it in your place to pay for your sin. And the good news is, he says, come to me, flee to me, trust in me, and you will not have to fear the wrath of God. All right, so that's the pain of Jesus. Now, let's take a look at the person of Jesus. Who is this man? Is he a man? Is he God? Who's he praying to? If he's God, is he praying to himself? And what's this with not my will, but thy will? Wouldn't the will of Jesus and the Father be identical? What about, and, and he needs his will changed. What is going on here? Well, one way to understand the person of Christ is to study the heresies that have been believed over the years about the person of Christ. In fact, the first 400 years of Christendom, they were trying to figure this out. Who exactly is this person, Jesus? And a number of heresies came up. So let me give you five heresies concerning the person of Christ. And uh, sometimes the best way to do theology is... Uh, Sometimes it's okay to define things with a sentence, but other times the best way to do it is to kind of draw a box around that which you can't believe. All right, Don't go into this heresy. Don't go into that heresy. As long as you stay in the box, you're safe. So let's do that with five heresies. The first one is Arianism. Arianism is the heresy that denies that Jesus is God. It denies the deity of Christ. By the way, if some nice Jehovah's Witnesses come knocking on your door and they give you a magazine and you get to talk and you use the word Jesus and gospel and grace and Bible and you go, well, we believe the same thing. No, you don't. The major difference between Arians, Jehovah's Witnesses are modern-day Arians, but there was a guy named Arius. Um, He believed that Jesus was... A powerful spiritual being, but not God. He was created. And they believe that also. Okay, I, I don't know if I told you about this, but about a year ago, I was at my favorite place, Sam's Club. I was walking through around the parking lot, and there was a guy preaching at the cart guy. And uh, the cart guy's just nicely nodding his head, and he was talking about the end of the world and uh, that Christ is coming back. And I joined in. I go, oh, I'm preaching on, on the end of the world, Matthew 24. And we, we agreed on a lot of things. And then I go, where are you coming from? What church you go to? He says, I'm a Jehovah's Witness. Things got real tense right then. And I said, so we disagree on who Jesus is. I believe Jesus is God. And boy, he started spitting off verses, and I started spitting off verses, and then I threw out a Greek word, and he spit, and we were just having, and the poor cart guy goes, can I go now? (laughs) (laughs) However you look at it, Jesus is God. You go, how do you prove that? Oh, we could go to so many places. But let me just give you five quick verses where Jesus is called God. 
John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. So that's another name for Jesus. He is the Word. The Word becomes flesh later on in verse 14. In the beginning was Jesus, the Word. And the Word was with God. Oh, so you've got separate, separateness there. You've got God and the Word. He's with. And the Word was God. There it is. Jesus is God. But it says he's with. Yeah, he's with. And he is. But there it says Jesus is God. John twenty twenty eight. after Thomas feels the holes in his hands and his side, his exclamation is, my Lord and my God. Now, if Jesus was not God and he had any integrity, he would say, don't call me God. No. He says, blessed be you, Thomas. You, you got it right. Now, blessed be those who get it right without having to see me. But he doesn't correct him. He receives. This is the climax of the book. Thomas, my Lord and my God. Yep, you got it right. Romans 9.5 speaks of the Christ who is God over all. Blessed forever, amen. Titus 2.13, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter. 2 Peter 1.1, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There are five verses where Jesus is called God, and there's many other places we could go. Um, but Arianism denies that Jesus is God. So you don't want to go there. Now, the opposite error is docetism. Docetism denies the humanity of Christ. Now, it doesn't deny that he looked like a human. But in essence, it's a picture of God with skin on. Okay? He's God, but he's not really human. If you were here for Christmas Eve, we talked about um, you know, some of the views of Jesus in the manger, away in a manger, no crying he makes. How the new moms of newborns, how's that, how, do, do they cry? They cry, don't they? Yeah. So, not Jesus. He had a halo. He never, he never filled a diaper either. No. Um, <laughs> all right. Docetism says, oh, he was God, but he had the illusion of humanity. Here's the problem with that. If his humanity was an illusion, then his suffering was an illusion. So as we look at him in the garden, we go, oh, well, you know, it's not real. No big deal. Yeah, he was crucified, but, you know, he's God, so it couldn't have hurt. No. He is 100% human. Hebrews 2.17 speaks of Jesus as our high priest, and it says this, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers, that's you and me, in every respect, fully human, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to be a human to be a high priest for us. Okay, So Arianism denies his deity, Docetism denies his full humanity. Now, there's a couple more. Apollinarianism says Christ has a human body with a divine mind. So here it's like you're, you're uh, taking parts 
from God and parts from human. So he had a human body, but a, a divine mind, but it's not fully God and not fully human. Right? Um, the problem with that is, well, he needs to be fully human. If he doesn't have a human mind, then he's not human. Similar, uh, Eutychianism denies the distinction of the natures, creating a new entity with only one nature. So this said that um, he wasn't distinct in having a divine nature and a human nature, but those two were combined into one meatloaf of a new nature. Well, once you mix the natures, it's a, uh, a third thing. So this is a heresy. So you've got to be careful that you don't fall into any of these heresies. Now, um, in the year 451, in Chalcedon, the early church had a council, and they hammered out a creed that uh, prevents us from falling into any of these heresies. And this is part of the Chalcedonian Creed. It speaks of our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood. In other words, this person Jesus is fully God and fully man. Perfectly God and perfectly man. Okay, Truly God and truly man. But now here we get into the natures. To be acknowledged in two natures... But now look at these words, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence. All that to say, he's only one person. But that one person is 100% fully God, 100% fully man. And those two natures are not confused. They're distinct, but, you, but united in one person. Distinct within that one person, but, but they are in only one person, not two persons. Okay. Now, let me introduce one more heresy that maybe you've heard about lately called modalism. Now this, this gets into the issue of the Trinity. Modalism denies the distinct personhood of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So um, modalism basically says, Orthodox Christianity would say there's only one God and he exists as three distinct persons simultaneously. Modalism says there's only one God in one person. But that one person can shift modes. He can be the Father at one time. He can morph into the Son. He can morph into the Holy Spirit. We would say one God, three persons. Modalism says one God, one person at a time. All right? So some of you are familiar with the whole controversy, the elephant in the room and T.D. Jake's who comes from a oneness Pentecostal background. Not not all Pentecostals, but there's a group called oneness Pentecostals. Oneness meaning one person. There is only one person in the Godhead. Now the problem with this is you've got verses like Christ's baptism. 
Matthew 3, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. So there's Jesus in the water. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. There you've got the Holy Spirit. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So you've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all in the same scene. And they would have to say uh, it was an illusion or it was a manifestation, but not, uh, not three distinct persons. And that just, I don't think, is faithful to Scripture. You've got Romans 8. It says, Jesus, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So you've got God the Father right now, and at his right hand, you've got the Son, Jesus, praying for us. They're both in existence. Okay? And then, of course, you've got Jesus saying to the Father, not as I will, but as you will. Two wills, which screams two persons. Right? So, um, who is this Jesus? Well, this scene in the garden reveals some deep mysteries. Now, I'm not saying it's easy to understand, but it reveals some profound truth about the Godhead. There is only one God. This one God has existed eternally as three distinct persons at the same time. One of these persons, 2,000 years ago, takes on human nature and a human body. He was only one person with two natures, fully divine and fully human. That one person falls on his face in the dirt and cries out to the other person, take it away. The other person hears him, says no, strengthens him, they align their wills, and Jesus goes to the cross. Deep mystery. But as I said, I think sometimes the best way to define truth is to, to study the error and live within the box of truth. Now, let's look at the prayer itself. The prayer of submission. First time Jesus prays, he says, My Father, if it be possible... Let this cup pass from me. But then there's the submission. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, here he begins with, if it's at all possible, take the cup, take the crucifixion from me. Now, is it possible? Well, once decision one was made, decision one is that God would redeem a people and their sins would be paid for. Once that decision was made, it's not possible to do this any other way. So here the prayer is, if possible, take it away, but not my will, thy will. The second and third prayer is, my father, if this cannot pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. 
virtually identical, but before he starts with, if possible, I want it, now he says, if not possible, I submit. A little bit of submission. And then finally, not my will, but thy will. Now, how can they both be God and have different wills? Is this sin? to not be perfectly aligned all the time. Well, let me talk about the word will. The word will can mean different things in different contexts. Let's talk about will one and will two. Okay? Um, Will one. God's eternal, unchanging plan. Theologians refer to that as the eternal decree the will of God by which all of reality is being worked out right now. It's an eternal plan. Guess what? Even your free choices are part of that eternal plan. And some people go, oh, it can't be free if it's determined. You're not God. Philosophers aren't God. God can determine everything that happens including your free choices, and you're still accountable for them. But here's how this word is being used in Ephesians 1.11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his what? His will. That's will one. Eternal, unchangeable plan by which everything is being worked out. The Father and the Son for all eternity are in perfect harmony about the eternal will. Here Jesus even says in John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I have come to do the eternal will that we've both agreed upon. But notice here, he has a will. And God the Father has a will. So now let's talk about will two. Will two would be the actual choosing in the moment. There's the overall will, and then there's the choosing in the moment. A simple illustration. Let's say a kid says, I want to be a football player. My dream is to play football. That's the big will. And every day, he has to work out. That's the choice every day that aligns itself with the big will. Now, here's what is profound. While Jesus and the Father share will one, that doesn't mean it was easy for Jesus to exercise will two in the heat of the moment. In other words... To accomplish their shared will, number one, sometimes Jesus needed to agonize to align his will too. Okay? Does that mean he was in sin? No. It would have been sin if he didn't eventually submit his will to, to will one. But the struggle itself is not sin. In fact, 
We see that here in Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus never sinned. He struggled. He was tempted. The temptation isn't sin, though. If this isn't true, if the agony isn't true, then he's not fully human. Another way to, to, to illustrate this is Paul in Romans 7. This is on a human level now. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire, the will, to do what is right. That's will one but not the ability to carry it out, will too. For I do not do the good I want, it's overall desire, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. He fails in the daily choice. Here's another illustration. Okay. Um, we're coming up on the, I think it's the fourth anniversary of my fateful trip to the Dominican Republic. Okay, and um, we went white water rafting, Caleb and I, and Jason, and uh, his son Noah. And you go up this mountain, and there's this beautiful, fast-running stream, and we went white water rafting. And um, they go pretty fast. And uh, we stopped at one point, and there was a cliff, 50 feet. Hundred feet? No, I don't. And you could stop with your little raft and then go climb up on top of the cliff. And the the guides are like, "Ah, if you want to jump, jump." And um, Caleb jumped. He had his helmet on and his, and he went to the edge and jumped. Jason jumped. Noah jumped. Every kid on the trip jumped. I, I, I wanted to jump. My will wanted to jump. So I went up, and I got to the edge. I couldn't do it. I wanted to, but I couldn't. My will two didn't submit to my will one. So in shame, I went back down the mountain and got in the boat. So the next day... We went not up on a mountain, but down in this valley where there's a waterfall, and we're exploring, and Caleb and I are on top of this big rock, and probably from here to that blue square over there was another big rock with a big hole in the middle. And I failed yesterday. I'm not going to fail today. And I said, Caleb, I'm going to get a running start and run and jump on that rock. And he said, don't do it. I said, why? He said, you're going to kill yourself. <laughs> now, I don't know if I was trying to prove this to him or to me or to, I don't know, but I, I wasn't going to give in to will two, not following will one. So I ran and I jumped. And actually, my, my right foot landed on the rock. And then I heard, crack. And that was my Achilles tendon snapping in two. You know when your Achilles snaps, you have no power in your foot? 
and you can't jump. So I fell to the bottom, and I go, Caleb, I think I'm hurt. So he and Jason carry me up 700 feet of winding Dominican jungle, snake-infested, bug-infested, you know the rest of the story, okay? All that to say, I'll go back to the cliff. Jumping off the cliff is an example of me agonizing to submit my will to what I wanted to do But I failed. Jesus in the garden didn't fail. He was sweating blood. He was filled with terror. He looked at hell. It took three prayers. Now, I don't know if you like the movie The Passion of the Christ or not. But I do love that scene. It's the opening scene where Jesus is sweating and trembling. And he prays, and then he gets up. And a snake comes slithering out. And he crushes its head. And then he walks to the cross. That's what happened here in the garden. Submits his will. Crushes Satan's head. Gets up, gets arrested, and goes to the cross. Let's pray.